And let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're only going to deal with one verse today, Romans 12, verse 1. And I'm calling this Dedicate Yourself to God. <clears throat> Dedicate Yourself to God is the title. Yep. So let's pray. Lord, we just appear before you and we want to be very humble. We want to be very open. We want to hear what you have to say and be completely willing to obey it. And so we pray you'd work in us, Lord. Take away anything that would hinder your word from having its powerful effect in our lives. Take away any sin, any pride that would resist your word and its effect. And let us, Lord, be transformed by your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We come to a milestone in our study of God's Word today, because we have come to a whole new section of the book. Romans can be divided into two sections, chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 to 16. Chapters 1 through 11 are doctrinal, and chapters 12 to 16 are practical. In chapters 1 to 11, we have exposition, and in chapters 12 to 16, we have exhortation. In the first 11 chapters, we have doctrine laid out for us. In the next five chapters, we have duty or practice or application laid out for us. We have first information given and then application urged upon us. Now notice the way Paul lays out the book of Romans is that he doesn't start by telling us what to do. In fact, he doesn't tell us what to do until we get to chapter 12. The first 11 chapters are him telling us what God has done for us. You notice that? Again and over and over, he's piling these wonderful truths upon us, the mercies of God. He's just pouring over us of what God has done in Christ for us. And he does the same thing in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters are all about what God has done for us in Christ. The next three chapters are how we are to respond to that by walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. So that's the proper order. First, what God has done. Secondly, how we should respond to what God has done. You can't build a house without laying a foundation, right? The first 11 chapters are the foundation. The next five chapters are the house that he's building on the foundation. And also, we don't spend our whole life laying the foundation, right? You don't spend your whole life just working, working, building a foundation. No, you get the foundation laid, and then you build on it. In chapter 12, Paul is going to start building the house that he's laid the foundation for. So application without a foundation of rich doctrine leads to legalism. And the reason it does that is because if you start telling a brand new Christian, do this, do that, don't do that, do this, and you don't lay a foundation of what God has already done for him, he's going to try to do what you've told him to do in the energy of his flesh in order to please you. But the proper way to respond is 
how can I please God because of what God has already done for me? And so that's why Paul lays out this rich doctrine in the first 11 chapters before he tells us to do anything in terms of applying it. So doctrine without application is dead orthodoxy. We don't want that. We don't want doctrine without application, but neither do we want application without doctrine. Both of these things go together like a hand and a glove. They're, they're meant to work uh, one with the other. So our teaching has to lead to devotion and to practice and to experience, or else we're just puffing our heads up with a lot of knowledge. And the Bible tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So we're going to begin to hear the fresh word of God as to what he would have us to do now that we've heard what God has done for us. Now the book of Romans basically is Paul's explanation and application of the gospel. That's what Romans is. He gives us his thesis in chapter 1 verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for in it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. But notice in that thesis statement, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he goes on for the rest of the book to explain and to apply the gospel. Well, the first 11 chapters are the explanation of the gospel. The next five are going to be the application of the gospel. How do we live as those who have embraced this good news of Jesus Christ? That's the question. So Romans 12 verse 1 is the acorn of how to live out the gospel. And the rest of these five chapters are the full tree. But everything else Paul is going to say in the last five chapters of this book can be found in seed form in verse 1. It's like... <laughs> He, he piles it all together in verse 1, and then he's going to unpack it for the next five chapters of how that actually works out in relationship not only to God, but also to the church, to your enemies, to the government, to the weaker brother. And he goes on and on and on to show how the gospel applies in all areas of life. You could, you could really break down the book of Romans in five words. And it's nice because they all start with the letter S. Sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. First three chapters, sin. Chapters 3 to 5, salvation. Chapters 6 through 8, sanctification, holiness. Chapters 9 through 11, sovereignty. The sovereignty of God in the lives of his people. And the final five chapters, service. This is how we serve God. But we're just going to focus on Romans 12, verse 1 today. And in that verse, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you. That word urge can also be translated as exhort, or beseech, or entreat, or beg, or encourage, or implore, or entreat. These are all different ways that you can translate that word. But just picture the Apostle Paul urging in other words, it's a strong word. There's strong language here. I urge you, I beg you to do something now that you have received this gospel by which the mercies of God have been poured on your life. This is what I want you to do. Now, who is he urging? I urge you, therefore, brethren. 
He's not talking to the lost. He's talking to the church. He's not urging sinners to do anything. He's talking to those who have embraced this gospel, and this is their responsibility. What is he urging them to do? Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Now, just think about the word present for a minute. The word means to put something at someone else's disposal. The best word picture I could think of is a knight who comes up to the king and he kneels down and he says, at your service, your majesty. That's what it means to present. He's presenting himself before the king to do whatever the king needs him or wants him to do. He's putting himself at the disposal of the king. And Paul is saying, present your bodies, put them at the disposal of God. Now this morning, we want to look at this dedication that Paul is calling us to make. When he says to present your bodies, he's talking about giving our bodies or offering our bodies, presenting them to God, which really boils down to making a dedication of yourself, your entire self, to God. And we want to talk about the essence of that dedication and then the motivation for that dedication and then the result that flows from that dedication. So the essence, the motivation, and then the result. They're all found in verse 1. So first, the essence of the dedication. And the first thing we notice is that this dedication is a presenting of our bodies, not our heart. He doesn't say present your hearts to God, present your bodies to God. I know it's popular in America to talk about giving your heart to God. But that's not really what the Bible says. It doesn't talk about us giving our hearts to God. In fact, if we're talking about the sinner giving his heart to God, why would God want the sinner's heart? It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's depraved and corrupt. What's God going to do with this old wicked heart? The Bible doesn't say that the sinner is supposed to give God his old wicked heart. The Bible says God gives the sinner a new heart. He takes out the heart of stone and gives him a heart of flesh. God has to do that because he can do nothing with that old, dead, corrupt, depraved heart of the sinner. He has to make it new. So, no, he's not talking about us as Christians giving our heart to God. He's talking about us as Christians presenting our bodies, which means the totality of your being, all that you are, you are to give to God. He's not talking about us giving God something, He's talking about God giving ourselves. So it's not like God says, okay, I want you to give me your house. I want you to give me your car. I want you to give me your bank account. As though if we did all of that, then we're home free. We can do anything else we want. <laughs> He's saying, I want you to give me yourself. And that's when you talk about a person's body. It's them, the whole person, giving themselves unto God. Now, Remember when the Jewish leaders came to Jesus trying to, to trip him up? And they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he says, give me a denarius, which was the coin. It was one day's wages for a laboring man. So they, someone gave Jesus a denarius, and he says, whose inscription, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? And they said, well, that's Caesar's. And so Jesus said, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And he said, also give to God what is God's. Caesar's inscription and likeness was on this coin, so this coin should be given back to Caesar. But God's likeness and image 
is on us. He created us in his own image. Therefore, we need to give ourselves back to God. Do you see the parallel? If God's likeness is in you, then you are responsible. It's your duty to give yourself back to him. So notice that this very first command here in the book of Romans has to do with our relationship to God. Not other people, not the church, not our enemies, not the government. All that comes later. The very first thing Paul tells us is that we need to give ourselves to God because that's the most important thing we can do. And we love to talk about God's unconditional love in the church. But Romans 12.1 is talking about an unconditional surrender, which is just as important as his unconditional love to you. You need to respond with an unconditional surrender to him. Now, if we are to present our bodies to God, let's think about the various members of our body and how this could actually practically work out in your life. Some of the members of our body are eyes. If we're to present or to dedicate our eyes to God, well, I think the very first thing that would mean is that we are to avoid looking, using these eyes that God has given us, to look on things that would defile us or corrupt us. And folks, I believe we live in the most difficult time in the history of the world, the history of planet Earth, to keep your eyes pure. Because we live in an image-driven culture. I mean, think, think of the world a few hundred years ago. They didn't even have cameras. The only images they had were paintings that people would make. And today we've got photos on Facebook and Instagram, and we've got, uh, everyone's putting out videos. And, Everywhere we go, we've got Netflix on our computer. We've got the internet. We can go on YouTube. Images are everywhere. Everywhere we look, there's image, image, image. And unless you're very careful, you will be corrupted by those images. Your soul will be corrupted. And so we, if we're to present our eyes to God, we, never, we need to take that into account. You need to figure out, brothers and sisters, what you can view without sinning. Because if, if what you view causes you to sin, you need to just cut it off. So if you can't watch a movie without sinning, then you ought not to watch that movie, right? If you can't invite Jesus to come sit down beside you on the couch to watch the, watch the movie, then that's not a movie that you should watch. I mean, those are pretty strict standards, aren't they? <laughs> so if you can't invite Jesus to sit next to you while you go to this website and view what's on there, then that's not an appropriate website for you to go to. And I, I really think some people just need to cut off that source because they don't have the self-control to be able to discern and to carefully choose what they allow their eyes to see. For some people, it means they just can't get on their computer or else maybe they shouldn't even have um, data on their cell phone. You need to know yourself and you need to know what causes you to stumble and fall and sin and you need to take steps to prevent that from happening because God calls us to present our eyes as part of our body, members of our body. Now that's the negative side of presenting your eyes. The positive side is use your eyes to pour over the scriptures. Use your eyes to look on people with compassion and to help those that are hurting and need your help. Think about your ears. We're to present our ears to God. We often use our ears to listen to things we shouldn't, right? We listen to people gossip to us. 
or slander somebody or tell lies. If someone starts to gossip to you, I think the best thing for you to say is, you know, you really shouldn't talk to me about this. You should go talk to that person you have a problem with because I, the Lord doesn't want me to be a part of this. So I would just encourage you to go talk to that person. You'd be much better off than talking to others. You know, just living in this world, you can't help but absorb some of the filth and the profanity and the blasphemy that people say. Just If you go to a job and the people next to you are using all this kind of vile speech, there's really not a whole lot you can do. But we don't have to seek it out, right? We don't have to intentionally fill our ears with this filth. And so that's why you need to be careful about what movie you allow yourself to watch or what audiobook you listen to, things like that. Instead, use your ears to listen to the preaching of God's Word. Use your ears to listen to praise and worship. Use your ears to listen to the prayers of other people as well as your own. What about your lips? If we're to present our bodies to God, we need to present our lips to God. Ephesians 4.29, I think, is, is just the best verse that I know of in the Scripture to inform me of what I'm to do with my speech, with my words. Paul says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. That word unwholesome refers to rotten food. Let no rotten thing come out of your mouth. I know it's become popular for Christians to use certain words, and I don't understand it because to me, it, to me that's a rotten word. Uh, I don't know. Maybe things have changed since I was a kid. When I was a kid, you just didn't say certain words. Or if you did, your mom washed your mouth out with soap. And that literally happened to me as a kid. I don't know if you ever went through that, but yeah, that, that's what mom did to us when we use language we ought not use. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as is good for edification. Now there you've got guidelines for what the Lord wants you to do with your lips. Edifying words, uplifting words, giving grace to people who hear you. So we should use our lips, not for slander or gossip or lying or anything like that, but for praising God, witnessing to the lost, building up brothers and sisters in the body. What about our hands? Refuse to let your hands hurt people, but only help, only serve, only bless others. Use your hands to lift them up and praise to God. Use your hands to support your family and support the church to help the hurting. What about your feet? Refuse to allow your feet to run into those places of temptation where you are probably going to give in and sin. And you all know what those places are. Refuse to allow your feet to take you there. If you're going to present your feet to God, then dedicate those feet to taking you to places that are going to glorify God. Let your feet walk or drive to church, to Bible study, to prayer meeting, to places where you share the gospel, 
to your work where you're going to serve the Lord as unto him. Let your feet take you to those places that the Lord wants you to go. So the very first thing we learn about the essence of this dedication is that it has to do with our body, all the various members of our body. Now the second thing is that this dedication is called a living sacrifice. Back in Romans 12, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament, God's people offered sacrifices. They offered offerings to God. These were animals that they would kill and give to God. Some of those offerings were related to reconciliation with God, like the sin offering, the guilt offering, the peace offering. But there was an offering that was not related to reconciliation with God. Its purpose had to do with consecration to God. And it was called the burnt offering. And this offering, the, the other offerings I just mentioned, the person offering it or the priest could eat part of that offering. And it symbolized fellowship with God. But this particular offering, the burnt offering, the priest or the, the worshiper did not eat any of it. The animal was killed. It was cut up into pieces. It was placed on the altar. And the whole animal was burned. It was consumed in, in fire. And it was all given to God as a soothing aroma. And that burnt offering of the Old Testament has its counterpart in Romans 12.1. We are to give ourselves a living sacrifice. This sacrifice is our complete consecration to God. It's for His pleasure and His glory. Now, one of the big differences between those Old Testament offerings and this offering or this sacrifice is that those animal sacrifices were dead and God calls us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. And I'm starting to think perhaps it's more difficult to offer yourself as a living sacrifice than as a dead sacrifice. What I mean by that is you've got thousands of people who have died as martyrs for their faith. They're dead sacrifices. They died for Christ. And I, I really can't even imagine the difficulty that they went through as they were burned at the stake. You know, horrible, horrible deaths that they underwent for Jesus Christ. But it was relatively brief, their suffering was, and then they were in the presence of Christ forever. God calls us, most of us will not have to face, maybe none of us will have to face uh, giving our life as a martyr, but all of us are called to give our life to Jesus Christ as a living sacrifice. In other words, we are to, to dedicate ourselves to doing the will of God, not just for a brief period of time until we die, but for the rest of our lives. Every day, every hour of every day for the rest of our lives, we are to sacrifice our own desires for His desires. We are to give up our will to embrace His will. And that's a sacrifice that we offer to Him. So it's called a living sacrifice. Now the problem with living sacrifice is that they like to squirm off the altar. <laughs> Nobody likes to be on that altar when the fire is burning you. We like to get off. But yet, God's calling us to remain on the altar, to die to self, to die to those desires that don't line up with His, and to embrace His will. Jesus said, if any man wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
So it's a living sacrifice. Not only that, it's a holy sacrifice. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. The word holy means set apart. This is a sacrifice where we set ourselves apart from everything else and we set ourselves apart to God. And Paul talks about this kind of thing over in 2 Corinthians 5.15. Let me read that to you. 2 Corinthians 5.15. He says, And Jesus died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So that's God's call in your life, to no longer live for yourself. Man, this is hard, isn't it? Because we are born naturally self-centered. We're selfish creatures. We think about ourselves all the time. And yet, once you've been saved, he says, don't any longer live for yourself. Live for the one who died and rose again on your behalf. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul makes mention of this again. And he says there in verse 19, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Again, he's not talking about the heart. He's talking about the body. Glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You have become a slave of Jesus Christ. He bought you. He bought you out of the slave market and he re redeemed you and set you free from sin. But now you are consecrated. You're set apart to him. And so this is a holy sacrifice because it's set apart unto his purposes. So the main purpose in our life as Christians, brothers and sisters, is to learn what God wants us to do and then do it regardless of whether our own desires line up or not. That's where this sacrifice comes into play. And the other thing that we learn about the essence of this sacrifice is that it is our spiritual service of worship. Now, another equally acceptable translation is, this is your reasonable service of worship. The verse can be translated either way. It can go either way. And both ways it makes sense. In other words, Paul is saying, what I'm, what I'm telling you to do is not extreme. It's reasonable. If you have been set free from sin and Satan and death and given everlasting life, it's only reasonable that the one who bought you, that you would give back to him your whole life. That's reasonable. But it's also called our spiritual service of worship. And I find that interesting because we think about worship as what we do between 10 and 1045 on Sunday mornings. When we sing songs of praise to God, that's our worship service. We even call in church, we call that the worship service. But the Bible doesn't talk about singing songs of praise to God as worship. The Bible talks about dedicating your body to God as worship which means that you can worship God every minute of your life, not just when you're singing praise songs, but when you're obeying Him with your eyes, lips, mouth, feet, hands, all of the members of your body. When you take those members and you do what God wants you to do with Him, you're worshiping Him. So we have the privilege of worshiping Jesus all the time by obedience to Him, by surrendering to His Lordship, in our lives. It's our spiritual service of worship. 
So there we have the essence of this dedication. It's to present our body. It's a living sacrifice. It's a holy sacrifice. And it's our spiritual service of worship. That's what it is. But now let's talk about the motivation for it. Why should we do this? Why should we dedicate ourselves to God? Notice how he starts the verse. Therefore. That word alone tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> because whenever you find the word therefore, always look and see what it's there for. Someone made that, that <laughs> uh, phrase up at one time, and it works well. Whenever you see the word therefore, go back and find out what it's there for. The word therefore says, because of what I've already said leading up to this, therefore, do this. So what has Paul said in the first 11 chapters? He also uses another word here. Therefore, I urge you, by the mercies of God, there's your motivation. Therefore, I urge you, by the mercies of God. Paul has been laying out the mercies of God for 11 chapters. And he says, because of all the things I've told you for 11 chapters, this is how you should live. You should present your bodies to God as a sacrifice. Now, what has Paul said in the first 11 chapters that show us the mercies of God? It would take a long time if we really dwelt on them, and I'm not going to do that, but I'm just going to read you. I went through the first 11 chapters and just wrote down the mercies of God that I saw there, and I came up with 50 different things. So I'm just going to read those quickly to you, and I hope you're overwhelmed by the mercies of God in Romans. One, His mercy in revealing through creation that there is a Creator. Two, His mercy in revealing His gift of righteousness. Three, his mercy in making this gift of righteousness conditioned by faith and not by works. Four, his mercy in making this gift of righteousness available to all who believe. Five, his mercy in providing redemption through Jesus Christ. Six, his mercy in setting forth Christ as a propitiation. Seven, his mercy in promising believers they will be heirs of the world. Eight, his mercy in giving us peace with God. 9. His mercy in granting us introduction into a standing of grace. 10. His mercy in causing tribulations to bring about perseverance, leading to proven character and hope. 11. His mercy in pouring out the love of God within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. 12. His mercy in promising to save us from the future wrath of God. 13. His mercy in causing us to die to sin when we were united to Christ. 14, his mercy in giving us new life and union to Christ. 15, his mercy in causing us to no longer be slaves to sin. 16, his mercy in sanctifying us. 17, his mercy in granting us eternal life. 18, his mercy in causing us to be joined to the risen Christ. Eight, or 19, his mercy in causing us to be released from the law. 20, his mercy in enabling us to serve in the newness of the Spirit. 21, his mercy in declaring that there is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. 22, his mercy in causing us to be set free, or I'm, I'm sorry, causing us to set our mind on the things of the Spirit. His mercy in causing the Spirit to indwell us. 24, his mercy in raising our mortal bodies from the dead. 25, his mercy in causing the Spirit to lead us to put to death the deeds of the body. 26, his mercy in causing us to cry out, Abba. Father. 27. His mercy in causing the Spirit to testify with our spirit that we are children of God. 28. His mercy in causing us to be heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 
29, his mercy in destining us for glory. 30, his mercy in a future revealing of us as the sons of God. 31, his mercy of a future redemption of our body. 32, his mercy of granting the spirit who intercedes for us. 33, his mercy in causing all things to work together for our good. 34, his mercy in predestining us to become conformed to the image of his son. 35, his mercy in calling us. 36, his mercy in glorifying us. 37, his mercy in being for us. 38, his mercy in not sparing his own son, but delivering him up for us all. 39, his mercy in his commitment to freely give us all things. 40, his mercy in Jesus interceding for us. 41, his mercy in not allowing anything to separate us from him. 42, his mercy in choosing us. 43, his mercy in loving us. 44, his mercy in making known the riches of his glory upon us. 45, his mercy in preparing us beforehand for glory. 46, his mercy in making us his people and his beloved and sons of the living God. 47, his mercy in causing elect Gentiles to find him, even though they were not looking for him. 48, his mercy in keeping for himself a remnant according to his gracious choice. 49, his mercy in causing the salvation of the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous for salvation. 50, his mercy in determining that his gifts and calling would be irrevocable. Now, I know I went through those really fast. If you want a list of all those, I'd be happy to print them out and give them to you. But isn't that overwhelming when you consider the mercies of God to us in Christ? Because of all those mercies, Paul says, I beg you, I urge you, give yourself totally to God because of those mercies. In other words, respond to his love. Respond to it. Don't let your heart lie cold and unresponsive as a stone. Show by a holy life that you're thankful for his mercies. That's the motivation. Now, I find it interesting that Paul didn't say, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the wrath of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. He doesn't say, live a holy life, because if you don't, you're going to hell. Instead, he says, I urge you by the mercies of God. Let the love and kindness of God lead you to repentance. Let it lead you to dedicate yourself to him. But let's move on to the final one here, which is the result. What results from this kind of dedication? When we take our life and we present our bodies to God, what does that result in? Well, notice what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Here it comes. Acceptable to God. There's the phrase. Acceptable to God. Now, I find that phrase in the New American Standard Bible a little curious because this Greek word comes up 12 times in the New Testament. And only three times is it translated as acceptable. And all three times are in the book of Romans. Every other place you find this Greek word in the rest of the New Testament, they don't translate it acceptable. They translate it as pleasing. And I think that would be a better translation here in Romans chapter 12. The Greek word is you areston. It's a compound word. It's made up of two Greek words, you and areston. The word you means good or well. We get our word eulogy from it. Eulogy is a good word. So this word means good or well. Arrest on means pleasing. So the literal 
rendering of this Greek word is well-pleasing. Let's read it like that. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That makes perfect sense. And it fits with the rest of the way this word is used in the New Testament. So, brothers and sisters, do you want to know how you can be well-pleasing to God? Acceptable seems kind of blasé. Like, well, you're not failing. I guess you're acceptable. But no, that's not the... This brings a smile to God. This delights God. This pleases God. And have you ever said, I wish I'd know what can I do to really please God? Here's your answer. Present your body to Him as a living and holy sacrifice. That is well-pleasing to God. Now, let's look at a few other places in the New Testament where this Greek word is used so we get a sense of its meaning. Let's go over to Hebrews 13. And take a look at verse 16. Hebrews 13, 16. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. What pleases God? According to this verse, doing good and sharing. Sharing your possessions, sharing your money, sharing what you have with others. Or look at verse 21. May, may God equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. What's pleasing in God's sight according to this verse? Doing His will. Doing good, sharing, doing the will of God. All of those things are pleasing to Him. Now go over to Philippians chapter 4. Verse 18. Here Paul is talking to the Philippians after they sent him a gift. And he's writing and he's thanking them for their gift. And he says here in verse 18, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus which you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That phrase, well-pleasing to God, is the same Greek word, you arrest on. This gift that you gave to me, your generous gift, is well-pleasing to God. So what pleases God? Doing good, sharing, doing the will of God, and giving a financial gift generously to ones who need it to spread the gospel. That pleases God. One more. Let's look at Colossians 3.20. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Children, when you obey your parents, you please God. You make God smile. You bring delight to Him. So listen up to that, <laughs> children. Romans 12.1, if you dedicate your life, the members of your body, to God for His service, God's pleased. God loves that. God enjoys that. He delights in that. Now let's draw this down to a conclusion. We've seen the text. We've seen the essence of the dedication, right? It's a living sacrifice. It's a holy sacrifice. It's your reasonable service of worship. It's to present your body. We've seen the motivation, the mercies of God that we have received in Christ. 
and the result, it pleases God. Debbie and I just finished reading a book called The End of the Spear, which is by Steve Saint. He's the son of Nate Saint, who is the pilot who flew five missionaries into Ecuador to try to reach the Alcan Indians in 1956. All five missionaries were speared to death by those Alcan Indians when they tried to present the gospel to them. But the, the amazing story is that the relatives of the people that were speared, the wives, went to that same village and began to minister to those same people, and many of them were converted. And including the very one that, that speared, Nate Saint, became one of the closest friends, is like a grandpa figure to Nate Saint's son, Steve Saint, who actually spent time living amongst these Indian people. But I say all of that to get to Jim Elliott, who was one of the five that were speared in 1956. In his diary, these words were found after he had died. He wrote these words, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. That was prophetic because he did not live a long life. He died at 28 years old, but he lived a full life. And he died for his master and his Lord. God answered his prayer. C.T. Studd, another missionary, said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. C.T. Studd was, one of, he was a professional cricket player. He was one of the best in the land in the 1800s over in England. And he, he gave up that career. He was famous. He gave the whole thing up, and he was wealthy as well. He took his riches and gave them all away, and he went over, I believe it was Africa, to spend the rest of his life in missionary service. So he doesn't say this and not follow his own advice. He did what he said. No sacrifice can be too great to make for Jesus Christ. It's like the words of the hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Or the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That hymn is putting Romans 12.1 into verse. So, brothers and sisters, will you obey the word of God? Will you present your bodies to God this morning? Will you dedicate the members of your body to God to be used in his service? Will you put your whole self at his disposal to do with you as he wills? Will you seek to live every second of every day to do his will and to pursue his glory? Will you, here it comes down to practice. Will you ask him how he wants you to spend your money, your time, your gifts, and your energy? What is it that you have? Will you ask him, will you, before making decisions, will you ask the Lord, is this what you want me to do, Lord? Direct me, show me if this is what you would have me do with my money. I'm, I'm about to make a purchase. Is this the purchase that you would want me to make, Lord? I'm about to spend some time, Lord. Should I invest my time doing this? You see, we started off our opening scripture, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's one thing to say, Lord, Lord. It's another thing to live as though Jesus is your Lord. Romans 12.1 is calling you to live as though Jesus actually is your master and your Lord. If he's your master and your Lord, then he tells you what to do and you obey. It's a high calling. And none of us are going to fulfill this calling perfectly. But this is our aim. This is our goal to live doing the will of God and obeying Jesus Christ in all things. And so I'm calling upon you this morning, brothers and sisters, give yourself to God. Present your bodies to God this morning. Seek God and ask him how he would have you live and then obey him. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, please, please, Lord, would you give us grace to humble ourselves or to die to the desires that are not in line with you and your word? Lord, we pray that you would help us to kill those sins in our lives, whether it's pride or envy or greed or laziness any of the sins of the flesh that don't honor you. Lord, we know we've got a long ways to go, but we want to unconditionally surrender ourselves to you right now. Give grace to every person here that's listening, Lord, that we would all right now in our hearts unconditionally surrender and say, Lord, direct me. Show me what is pleasing in your sight. Help me to give myself my body to you. Make that a reality, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.